to uh, take a brief break from our uh, study through the book of Luke uh, because we weren't able to uh, have a, a whole long, you know, kind of Luke thing yesterday. And it's really grateful for uh, one of our elders, uh, Brett Engbrick, for for sharing the gospel last night and, and preaching to our, our church family. So in order not to get things kind of out of kilter here, I uh, decided that we would just uh, kind of take a, a little break from Luke uh, this uh, morning, and uh, we'll catch back up with that uh, starting next week. And we're going to start our uh, time off uh, this morning uh, by taking it back to the year 2000. It was uh, the Summer Olympics. They were being held in Sydney, Australia. And uh, during those particular games, there was a 24-year-old woman. Uh, she was a sprinter by the name of Marion Jones, and uh, she climbed onto the medal platform uh, five times during those Olympics. And in the span of, of just a, a few days, Marion won the gold medals in the 100 and 200-meter sprints, the 4x400 relay, and bronze medals in the long jump and the 4x1. And uh, with five medals uh, around her neck, uh, she instantly became the, the, the golden girl of, of track and field. And uh, she uh, went professional, and she began to earn between seventy dollars and $80,000 uh, per race. Uh, per race. And, and millions more she won in, in race bonuses and endorsement deals. And uh, she ended up living in a $2.5 million home in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, her neighbors were people like uh, Michael Jordan and uh, Coach Dean Smith. And uh, it was an amazing accomplishment from a, a young lady who grew up a, among the strawberry fields of Oxnard, California. Uh, but, you know, things weren't nearly as golden in Marion's life as they appeared. Uh, in late 2004, it uh, was revealed that she had been using performance-enhancing drugs before, during, and after the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games, and it was an allegation that, that she vehemently denied. And as this investigation began to move forward and move forward and move forward, uh, the evidence against her grew stronger and stronger and stronger to the point by the fall of 2007, uh, she, she had no choice but to admit that she had lied under oath about her steroid use and her role in an associated check fraud scheme. And uh, Marion Jones, uh, she fell as hard and as fast as she can run the 100. And soon after her admission, she was stripped of all of her Olympic medals. She was banned from the sport that she loved. She was sentenced to six months in jail. To make matters worse, uh, the bank foreclosed on her $2.5 million home. She was forced to sell two other properties that were uh, deeded in her name, uh, including her mother's home, in order to pay her debt. In a little more than seven years, Marion Jones goes from Olympic gold medalist worth millions of dollars to federal inmate 84868 with less than $2,000 to her name. So what happened? What was going on in this young woman's life? Why would someone who had achieved so much more and had the potential to, to achieve even more than that, why would she get in activities that were so incredibly destructive? And at the some point, in the words of pastor and author Kyle Eidelman, he says this, our goals become gods, and we start to serve them and live for them and sacrifice for them. And Marion Jones' goal was to run fast. And it was a, a wonderful goal that, that brought with her great promise. But when she allowed her goal to become her God, when success in running morphed into an object of worship, Marion Jones encountered a horrific God that brought with it great destruction. And that's a God with a little G, folks. 
Now, there's a name for this phenomenon. It's a name that we don't use very often here in our 21st century culture, and it's this. It's called idolatry. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So in order to get started, uh, fire up your you know, Bible app on your phone or open up the Bible that you brought with you and uh, make your way to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, please feel free to grab one. And if you, you literally don't own one, please take one. That's our, our gift uh, to you. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. I, I believe it's on page 939 in, in the Bibles that are here in the room, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be mistaken. So, And if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, if you would do so, please. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, uh, you hold in your hand uh, a gift from God, his revealed word. And this is what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to start off with just a, a little primer here this morning uh, to talk about, you know, what is idolatry and what are idols? And, you know, if you look at a, uh, a postmodern view of idolatry, basically it's, you know, we look at this as, as, as primitive people bowing down to statues. And, you know, the images that, that come to our minds, at least to, to my mind, uh, is images of Indiana Jones and that, that golden idol from the, the very first movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it's, it's images of, of, of India where uh, people of, of the Hindu faith have created shrines and they filled them with carved images and act, offering sacrifices of food. I, I can remember uh, back in 2008, I had the, the privilege of uh, going to uh, Vizag, India to uh, teach uh, Indian and Nepalese pastors there, and uh, we, were, we were staying, Vizag's a, a, a large military uh, city, a, a big navy base is there, and uh, so the, the hotel that we were staying at wasn't very far from the beach, and uh, back 10 years ago, I, I would run a whole lot more often than I would run now, and so every morning uh, I would wake up uh, because I don't sleep well, and uh, it would, the light would just be breaking and I'd put on some running clothes and, and I would, uh, you know, I'd run to the beach and, and I would run back. And, and by the time that I got back, I, I, I knew that Kathy would be getting ready for bed. So I, I would call her, uh, before she, uh, went to bed. And there was, uh, uh, the, these, for lack of a better term, basically these, these little shacks, these little tiendas, but that, that's Mexican or that's Spanish, not uh, not Indian words there, and uh, but these little shops, and, and, and this particular shop had, had three telephones, these little booths with telephones in, and, and I, I would arrive uh, just as the shop owner was, was opening uh, his little telephone shop, and uh, 
the guy hadn't really gotten prepared, but, you know, I'm an American. I've got money. He wants my money. And so uh, he's going to, he, he opens up and, and he lets me uh, use his, his little telephone uh, system that he, he's got dialed in there. And so I'm, I'm on the phone talking to Kathy, but because I've interrupted his routine, uh, he, he would, would ultimately, he would come into the phone booth with me, which was very uncomfortable. And uh, he would have with him uh, a, a banana and, uh, and a, a thing of incense. And, and he would peel the banana and he would cut the banana and he would lay it on, on, on top of uh, the little shelf that was above the, the phone that I was using. And there was a, a little statue there of, of, a, of an Indian god. And he would uh, place the banana there. He would light the incense. And then he would look at me like this and he would go, shh. And I would stop the conversation with Kathy, and he would pray. And then when he was done praying, he would smile at me and very happy to, to, to get some extra money and, and go on uh, with his day. And so those are the kinds of things that I think of when it comes to, to idols. That's the picture that is in my mind. And in and Jesus' day in the first century Greco-Roman world, uh, especially in the books of, of Acts, we see and we find that, that these uh, Greco-Roman uh, communities were filled with, with idols and shrines where people worshiped them. And in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is looking around and he finds the city of Athens to be full of idols. There's Aphrodite, who is the the goddess of beauty and Ares, the goddess of war and Artemis, the, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And, and these cities, they were, they were littered with all of these shrines that represented all of these various gods that were worshipped in the first century. Well, folks, the reality is the 21st century isn't much different than that. We've just made our idols and our shrines much more sophisticated uh, we have these things that are called gyms where we go and we worship our bodies. And how do we know that we worship our bodies? Because they litter the gyms with, with uh, mirrors so that you can look at your body while you're working out. Uh, we have tall office buildings where we worship money and success. Uh, we have shopping centers and we used to have malls. Uh, where we worship uh, beauty and excess. We have, have stadiums where we worship sports teams. There, there are, there's the internet where we worship all kinds of, of crazy things. And in the words of, of Pastor Tim Keller, he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So anything that is so incredibly important to us, folks, something so amazingly desirous that if we lose it, life barely seems worth living. And our idols can be all kinds of things. They can be kids. They can be our spouse, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, our health, our job, our reputation, our talent, our money and possessions, our, our sexuality, our security, our comfort. It could even be our feelings. And none of these things are, are necessarily bad on the surface. As a matter of fact, every one of those things that I just mentioned, they're all good things. But when they move from being good to being the ultimate, when our life begins to revolve around them and depend upon them, then that which was originally good now becomes an idol. And it begins to not only consume our thoughts and our time and our money and our emotions, and it becomes an object of worship that ultimately drives us to sin against the living God. And you see, idolatry isn't one of many sins. It's the one great sin from which all other sins flow.
Look at the very first commandment. This is what God says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. See, God must be first in our lives. End of story. Anything else that we place before God is a violation of the first commandment. And a lot of us are like, I got that one. No problem with that. I, I, I'm good. I don't have any other gods. I only worship the God of the Christian Bible. But what happens when we steal? What happens when we, we, we cheat on our taxes? Or take something without asking for it? Or when we watch a, a bootleg movie? Uh, or when we install software on our computer that was intended to only be installed on one computer and we've got it on like all six computers in the house? Not only are we violating the Eighth Commandment that tells us that we're not supposed to steal, we're also saying, you know what, God? You aren't providing for me. You're not meeting my needs. So I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to be my own source of authority this time. I'm going to be my own God. And the same thing happens when we violate any of God's laws, because all sin is ultimately a form of idolatry. When we sing sin, we're saying this, God, my plan is better than your plan. That's what we're saying. God, I know better than you know. My way is better than your ways. God, I need this person. I need this thing. I need this feeling. I need this whatever more than I need you. And in a similar fashion, when we look at the second commandment, it says this, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And to this, we say the same thing. God, I've got this one down. There are no carved images in my house that I'm worshiping right now. I'm not waking up in the morning and going and sacrificing to, the, to a statue of the Virgin Mary. Yet at the same time, we spend countless hours detailing our cars, perfecting our backswing, finding just the perfect outfit, staring at that little screen that has become permanently affixed to our hand. And what is really incredible about all of this is when Moses left the ancient Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai and climbed to the top to receive the Ten Commandments from God, what do the people do? They're waiting on Moses to return. And he delays, and he delays, and he delays, and he's not delivering the, the way that they would want him to deliver. And ultimately, what they do is they gather all their gold together, and they cast an idol in the form of a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. The God that had provided them a much-needed leader in Moses, the, the, the God who had inflicted plagues on, on Pharaoh so that the Israelites might be able to escape, the God who had a, a allowed the, the Red Sea to be opened so the Israelites could, could pass by on dry ground, and then as the Egyptians who were pursuing them went through the waters, he closed the waters upon them. He didn't meet their expectations. And so they set him aside for an object made out of human hands. And you know what? We look at those guys and we're like, how could they be so stupid? And then we do the very same thing. 
we're quick to replace God with something else when he doesn't work in the time frame that we desire, folks. And as long as God is doing what we want, when we want, how we want him to do it, we're good. But folks, we're a fickle crowd. And the moment that he disappoints, we are quick to redirect our allegiance. And many times we don't even realize that we're actually doing it. Now, why would that be? I'll tell you why. Our natural inclination is to worship something other than God because of our sinful hearts. We were made to worship. We were made to worship God. But when sin entered the world, our desire to worship didn't go away. But the object of that worship became twisted. So why do we do what we do? Romans chapter 1, which we just read, reveals the answer to that question. Let me read it again so that we can tear it apart. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, every person who has, is, or will ever live is in possession of the knowledge that God exists as well as some of the knowledge of his attributes, simply by observing the world around them. You and I know that God exists, and we know some things about God, not because we come, we don't have to come to church to figure that out. The universe screams God. The, the complexity of the universe screams God. We witnessed it yesterday at our festival. God created this amazing thing called lift. Igor Sigorsky figured out how to make it work with a helicopter. And you and I witnessed the divine intelligence of God at work. That an airfoil spinning through the air can, can, can put high pressure down below and low pressure on the top and make the things move towards one another. Incredible, incredible things. And so, now what do we naturally do? Well, verse 18 tells us we naturally suppress the truth. We know the truth and we suppress the truth. And then in verse 21, it says that we don't honor God. And then in 22, it says that we fool ourselves in thinking that we are wise when we're really fools. And then because of that, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we begin to worship created things. Now, I want you to Look at how God responds to this. Watch what he does. Next verses. Therefore, because of all that stuff we just read, you ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? 
This is what the therefore is there for. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. So what does God, God removes his restraining power, and you know what he says? Mike, do what you want. If you're so smart, Mike, if you know what's going on, go for it. Let your sin, Mike, just run rampant. I won't have to do anything to you. You'll inflict pain on yourself. That's what he does. He, he, he gives them up into the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I sin in such a way that I actually bring hurt upon myself. And why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. God doesn't even have to do any punishing here. He, he just lets the natural train of events occur. And we inflict all of this pain and suffering upon ourselves. And every human being must pursue something. We must worship. That's how we're created. And without God's intervention, the thing we will pursue will always be something other than God, folks. That's what happens. You see, if you had to summarize the Bible, it would be humanity's unrelenting rejection of God and its endless pursuit of idols and God's unrelenting rejection of idols and his endless pursuit of humanity. That's the Bible. And in the pages of the Bible, you can find account after account of virtually every kind of idol we can worship. Power, money, sex, privilege, food, you name it. And one of the accounts in the Bible that addresses this issue of what can happen when our children become an object of worship is found in Genesis chapter 22. And I want to show that to you. Because I know as a parent, it's easy to make your kid an object of worship. As a grandparent, it's even easier. I've witnessed it. Just kidding, mom and dad. <laughs> so here we have in Genesis chapter 2 an account of a fellow by the name of Abraham. He's the father of the great, three great monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. We meet him in Genesis chapter 12. And at that time, his name was Abram, and he was 75 years old. He's married to his wife, Sarai. They're childless. And God appears to Abraham, and this is what God says to Abraham. He says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and if and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram gets this very brief set of instructions. He obeys, he gets his wife, he gets his servants, and embarks on a journey to follow God. And it's not a, an easy journey, folks. And if you, you make your way through uh, the book of Genesis, you'll see that, that Abram is not a perfect man. He has lots of fits and lots of, 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 of and starts. Things are good, things are bad. Things are good, things are bad. But most of the time, he obeys God. And everything that God has promised Abram is happening. Except for one thing. There's one thing that God has promised that he has not delivered on. And he hasn't given Abram any children. And he especially hasn't given him a son. 
And how in the world is he going to be a great nation without an heir? And you make your way to chapter 15, and God renews his covenant with Abram. But still he and Sarai are childless. And Abram says, you know, I don't know if you notice God, but uh, this great nation thing isn't really happening here. Uh, we're trying to have kids, uh, but we're, we're just not having any success at all, God. And God replies, you know, Abram, don't worry. I, I've got this. And, and the years come and the years go. And, and God continues to tell Abram and Sarai that, that they're going to have a child. And, and in the process, he, he names them, renames them. Uh, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And it isn't until the 21st chapter when Abraham now is a hundred years old. And folks, that's old. That is way old. The dude is a hundred years old, and Sarah gives birth to Isaac. They had waited 25 years to have a child. I can remember when Kathy and I were in the process of trying to uh, adopt a child. We, we waited about a year. It seemed like a lifetime. We were losing our minds. These guys waited 25 years. And God comes through, and now they have a beloved son by the name of Isaac. And by the time you get to chapter 22, Isaac has grown from a baby into a boy. We're not exactly sure, sure how old he is. It might be 8, 9, perhaps 10, 11, 12. And God shows up again, and he speaks to Abraham. And this is what God says to him. This is after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And God said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Now you need to read a little bit between the lines to understand what is motivating God's command. It was always Abraham and Sarah's goal to have a son. But somewhere along the way, somewhere during those 25 years of patiently waiting, and then the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years after his birth, Isaac was no longer Abraham's goal. He's now Abraham's God. Now how do I know that? Look at verse 2. Notice, what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, take Isaac. Instead, he says what? Take your son, your only son, who you love. See, God, he's testing Abraham to see who he's really going to worship. Before Isaac's birth, God was the center of Abraham's love. Now it appears that, that Isaac has taken God's place. And to understand what's going on here, you need to understand a little bit of ancient Jewish culture. You see, Americans are, are individualists. We, we are concerned about ourselves. And it's a bad thing, folks. Few of us are concerned about community. We all have the, the idea of, I need to look out for myself. I need to do what's in the best interest of myself. Rarely do we look at doing what's in the best interest of our community. But Jews, especially in the ancient times, they're more concerned with family and community, and especially the family's success and its well-being was much more important than one's own individual success. And on top of that, the firstborn son was everything. He represented the family, and it was through him that the family would continue. And this plays out uh, uh, many times in, in Asian cultures here, here in the 21st century. I, I have a, a friend who uh, 
grew up in a Chinese, well, grew up in a Chinese-American family, and he was the second son. And uh, he hated being the second son. It defined everything in his life. He lived a, a broken and hurting life because he was the second son. Because that's how the culture worked. And so when, when you are the, the, the firstborn, you're everything, you're the family, and it's through you that, that the family name is going to continue. And then you also need to understand the idea of sacrifice. You see, the purpose of sacrifice was to pay for sin. And in this case, the sacrifice of a firstborn would be to pay for the sins of the family. You see, God wasn't calling Abraham to, to murder his son Isaac for no reason. He was calling Abraham to take Isaac's life as a sacrifice for the sins of the family. This is a huge test. Who is Abraham going to love more? Author Tim Keller says this, though this command was comprehensible, that it did not make it, any, that didn't make it any less terrible. Abraham was faced with the ultimate question, God is holy, our sin means that Isaac's life is forfeit, Yet God is also a God of grace. He has said he wants to bless the world through Isaac. How can God both be holy and just and still graciously fulfill his promise of salvation? That's what he's faced with, folks. God made a promise to me. He gave me this promise. And now he's potentially going to take it away. You see, he knew all of these attributes about God, but how in the world were they going to play out together? Now, Abraham didn't have to answer, have the answer to those questions, yet he obeys. Look at the next few verses. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. They're walking, right? You make, what, maybe 20 miles a day when you walk? It's a huge mountain that looms off in the distance. It's a, a three-day journey to get there. Think about this. I mean, here he is. He knows the end is coming. You guys know what that's like. You've had loved ones who, who you knew were going to pass away because they're sick. Or, or perhaps you had a, a loved one who was, was going to be moving away. And that day inches closer and closer and closer. And it gets harder and harder. And that's what's going on in Abraham's mind. He's like, I've got my son, I, I, I've got the wood for the offering, and I'm going there. And it's just looming in front of him. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You see the faith in that last sentence? I and the boy, we're coming back. I don't know how it's going to happen, but we're coming back. And so he goes by himself with his son, carrying the instruments of his son's death. So what drives Abraham forward? It's his faith in God. He trusted God's word, even though he didn't understand God's word. And see, the, the primary reason we are unwilling to sacrifice our idols, it's because we don't trust God. That's why. Guys, why, why don't you want to give up the porn? You don't trust God. Why, why, why don't... We want to give up the mistress. We don't trust God. 
Why don't we want to give up the addiction? Because we don't trust God. Whatever it is, whatever that thing that, 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 that gives us life, why don't we want to give it up? Because we don't trust that God has something better, that he is better. That's what happens. And we can't see how we're possibly going to survive without them. But God knows we can't survive with them. And he understands that. And so we have a choice to make. Will we put our faith in God or will we put our faith in our idol? Will we trust God or will we trust our bank account? Will we trust God or will we trust our job? Will we trust God or will we trust our appearance or our possessions or our pride or this relationship? And who we trust ultimately determines how things play out in the end. And the question as you're reading this is, what is going to happen? And, and, and many of us, we've read this time and time again, so we know the end of the story. But when you're reading it for the first time, it's like, like that novel you're reading and you can't get enough of it. You don't want to stop because you want to find out what happens next. It's like the This Is Us episodes that you got to just watch because you want to know what happens next. And, and so what does he choose 6 through 10. And, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Think about this, you guys. Think what's happening here. Imagine doing that with your child. Uh, 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 imagine your child being beside you. And you have in your hand the very thing that you're going to use to kill them. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine how hard that hurt? Can you imagine your kids saying that? Daddy, I don't get this. What's going on? I've seen sacrifices. We've done it all the time. We've got everything we need, but we don't have the thing that is going to die. And Abraham knows in his head, yes, son, we do have the thing that's going to die, and it's you. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both, or so they went, both of them together. And as Abraham climbed the mountain, step by step, as he piled the wood for the altar, as he bound his son, and as he raised the knife, Abraham clung to the fact that God is holy and loving. See, God was asking Abraham to do the impossible, and Abraham was believing that his God would do the impossible. Next couple verses. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, don't lay your hand on on the boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. His hand is here. And as he's getting ready to drive it through his son, the God of the universe stops. And Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And brothers and sisters, the reason we reject God and embrace idols is because we believe the Lord won't provide. And the way that we reject our idols and embrace our God is when we believe that he will. So why did God do that? You see, until Abraham had to make a choice, he could never see that Isaac was the idol. 
until he had to choose, he could never see that he was the idol. And the same is the truth for us. Until we have to choose between God and our job, we will never know that it's an idol. When our employer asks us to do something that is unscrupulous, illegal, and wrong, we have a choice to make. Will we do what they say? Will we honor God? When we do what they say, our job is the idol. Until we have to choose between God and our success or money or power, we'll never know that they were idols. Until we have to choose between our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our spouse or our kids, we will never know that they were idols. Until we have to choose between God and our addiction that we're unwilling to admit that we even have, we will never know that it was an idol. You see, God places hard choices in our lives so that we can discover what is truly important to us. And when we're unwilling to sacrifice this or that or the other thing to do God's will, we can be very confident that it's become an idol. But there's a second reason God did this. And it was to foreshadow, to give us a glimpse of a sacrifice that would one day be made to demonstrate how much he loves us. On that same mountain, 3,000 years later, another father would prepare to offer up his son. But this time it would be different. This time the sacrifice would not be stopped. And the son would die. And on the cross of Calvary, God the Father offered up his one and only Son, the one with whom he was well pleased. And Jesus Christ became a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. And he did it so that we might know the extent of his love. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see, brothers and sisters, for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is no good reason for us to embrace idols. They can never do for us that which God has done for us. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy other than faith in the Son. Nothing. You can pursue all that you want, and it never satisfies. And you know what's crazy? Every one of us knows it. Even the most staunch atheist knows it. We all know that nothing but Christ will ultimately satisfy. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I skipped a very important part of the second commandment. Look at verses four through six. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, what? Am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God calls himself what? He calls himself a jealous God. And because God is God, folks, his jealousy is pure, unlike our jealousy, which is filled with sin. And why should God be jealous? After all, he owns everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. No one and nothing can compare to him. So why in the world would God be jealous? What is the thing that he is jealous for? Because there is always an object for jealousy. 
Folks, he's jealous for our hearts. He wants all of us because he loves us. What differentiates the one true God of the Bible from all the other false gods out there? It's love. It is passionate love that pursues us. And when we surrender our hearts, even partially surrendering them to something else, we worship something other than God. And God wants all of us, and we need all of him. Brothers and sisters, there is no idol that will ever satisfy. None. Our world is filled with people who have tried and who have failed miserably. But God pursues us relentlessly. He draws us to himself. He gives us that little spark of faith that allows us to believe. And he ultimately creates a life for us and an eternity for us that is far grander than anything we could possibly ever imagine because he is a good, gracious, and wonderful, loving God. To him be all the glory and praise forever and ever. Let me pray for you. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and uh, Lord, we confess the idols that we have placed in our lives. Lord, as we sit in this place right now, perhaps every one of us has some thought of that which we put ahead of you at times. Lord, I pray that you would reveal those things, that you would show us those things. And Lord, that we would turn from them and turn to you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the incredible love that you have demonstrated for us upon the cross of Calvary. May Jesus be our greatest desire. And it's through his risen name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to close?